Hi, my name is Tasneem Chopra, and I'm speaking to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. My next guest is Afghan lawyer Amina Rahimi, who is a community lawyer based in Melbourne Southeast. She shares with me her stories of childhood growing up in Afghanistan, between Afghanistan and Pakistan, the experiences that she learned from her grandmother and her mother, that her grandmother was in her 20s when her husband was disappeared by the Soviets, whose remains were later found in a mass grave after 30 years, of her mother's life spending 30 out of 52 years as a refugee, of Amina herself spending at least two-thirds of her life travelling between countries before finally coming to Australia. Hers is a raw tale of displacement, of new beginnings, of tragedy, but also of an overwhelming yearning for peace, for her people, for her country and for her children's future as well. I hope you enjoyed this really privileged conversation I was so lucky to secure with Amina Rahimi. You never know, you never know, you never know what is coming tomorrow. I'm delighted to invite our next guest on Streets Untold to the mic, and that is Amina Rahimi. Amina is a community lawyer based in Melbourne, Southeast, but she is herself of Afghan heritage. And at a time like this, in the, yeah, I guess in the juncture of world politics, I think it's very important to hear about the narrative of Victoria's Afghan community, if not Australia's, to understand A, what they're enduring, B, what they see as the, I guess, as, as a solution to the current crisis and what the experience as a refugee in Australia has been and what it has taught them about systems of privilege and of opportunity. So, Amira Amina, I mean, I thank you so much for being a guest on this program. How are you doing? Oh, thank you, Tasneem. The privilege is my all mine. I am a big fan of yours and of the work that you have done in this area. In the field, oh, sorry, you don't want me to say this. No, I talk about me, it's about you. <laughs> no, it's okay, I have to thank you on the platform, uh, so I will do fine. that. <laughs> My privilege to be here talking to you. And yeah, I, I am an Afghan and I was born in Afghanistan and we migrated to Australia uh, in 2011, so it's been exactly 10 years now. Uh, actually, it's 10 years in June 2021. And in these 10 years, I, I completed my university, started my law degree, got admitted into the legal profession, and I have now been practicing for a few years as a lawyer. That's astonishing. You've accomplished in 10 years what most people might accomplish in you know half a lifetime. So that in itself is, is incredibly admirable. And, and I'd love to discuss that yeah, as, we, as we get into your life in Australia. But in terms of a bit of background and context about your experience, I'd no, I'll be honest with our listeners. I read a post that you had on LinkedIn just yesterday. And if you don't mind, I'll actually read that post. You said, my grandmother was in her 20s when her husband disappeared during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. His remains were found in a mass grave after 30 years. My mother spent over 30 of her 52 years of her life as a refugee. I spent two thirds of my life as a refugee and went through two resettlements by the age of 20. Today, my daughter's generation in Afghanistan is facing what the last three generations have faced, four generations of violence, instability, and fear. Now, that's an incredibly powerful statement to make, and it is filled with perspective of lived experience and of a call to action, not just nationally, but globally as well. With your permission, I'd like to know a little bit a bit more about of your life prior to coming to Australia, where you were born, and where your two countries of settlement were that got you to Australia. I was born in Afghanistan, 
before the Taliban period. So in, in early 90s, 1991, my exact birth year. But at the time, there was instability in the country. And actually, I'm not sure if the viewers have followed history of Afghanistan. Afghanistan has been having political and war and, you know, the Soviet invasion and the instability since 1970s. And that's when my parents had originally migrated to Pakistan. So they had they had migrated. My father tells me that it took him three nights and three days of walking from Afghanistan to Pakistan. And the scene that he tells me, it's like the movies where there were like, you know, petrol planes on the way and then they would be hiding. They had actually escaped death a few times to reach to Pakistan. And similarly, my mom had a different story where, which I have mentioned in the post. So my mom tells me that she was about 10 years old when one night the soldiers knocked on their door and uh, everyone was sleeping. She was sleeping with her grandparents. Which soldiers were they? So that was in 1978. So the Soviet army had not come into Afghanistan at the time, but there were the communist parties, which were from the Soviet leaders. So there was the influence, but they had not formally come to Afghanistan at the time. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know too much about history of Afghanistan, but this is what my parents have told me. Sure. But it was the communist soldiers who were knocking on the door of your grandmother's house. Yes. The communist soldier. So what they were doing was that they were targeting and they were handpicking those people who they thought were not communists and were against the government. So my mom's dad, my grandfather, was a lecturer at a college and he was a very highly qualified man. So they came to their house to pick him up because he was against the government, as they say. So my mom says she she was sleeping. So when she heard the knock, she got up and she went and then she saw these soldiers taking her dad. So my mom ran, ran towards the soldier asking where they are taking her dad. And the soldier said that we are taking him and we will return him back in a few hours. And then my mom says that was the last time she saw her dad. She never saw her. And then after 30 years, I think it was in late 2000s when they found his remains in a mass grave. And my grandmother, with whom I lived for about five years, which I will tell later about my own life story. So she one day told me that, you know, when her husband was taken, she would go to all these commanders of the army to ask where her husband is. And one of the commanders once told her that we chopped him up and threw him in the river. And then my grandmother says that was the last hope for me. And then they migrated to Pakistan, like I think after a year of he was taken. And, you know, in Pakistan, they lived really, they, they struggled a lot for years. How many children did your mother have, your grandmother have at that stage? She had six children and my mom was the eldest. So my mom was wow. 10 years old and her youngest child, my uncle, was nine months old. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then my, my, my grandmother, unfortunately, at the time, there was this concept of child marriages. So my grandmother had got married at the age of 14 or 15. So by the time she had my mom, she was 16 or 17 years old, like roughly. So she was in her late 20s when, when she got with her. And, I'm, and she couldn't even get remarried because she had not seen the remains of her husband. 
So even though she knew that he would have been dead, but she was not certain for sure. So she was waiting for over 30 years. I can't even imagine what kind of trauma that must cause for a person to lose a partner, to lose the father, to not be able to have closure about the end of the relationship, to even move on in a cultural context because you don't have the remains. And, you know, I can imagine it's a relatively conservative community in the sense that she wouldn't have been able to move on without that confirmation. So, okay, so she moved to Pakistan, six children. Your mum was the eldest of the six at that time. Whereabouts in Pakistan did they stay? I think initially they went to Abbottabad. So it was a remote area, I think, in Pakistan. And then they eventually moved to Peshawar. And then my dad had a similar story where he was, so he tells me he was in year 12 when the soldiers came and handpicked him and his classmates from school when they were studying for being against the government. So a Russian soldiers again? They were Afghan soldiers, but the Communist Party. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know if that makes sense. So it does. Yeah, yeah. So there was the Communist Party going on there. So they would pick all those people who were in the resistance, who were anti-communist. And then my dad was in year 12 when he was picked from school. And he says they were imprisoned. And in one cell, there were 30 people. And when the soldiers would come to pick them for questioning, so he says they would ask us to lie down on the floor. And then the soldier would stomp on their back. And then automatically, as a reflection, you know, rises back. And then he says, when we would rise back, they would beat us, saying that you are retaliating. And then they would, he, he was in prison three times. And then after three times, he ran away to Pakistan. And even now, there are some marks in my dad's back. So there is some white patches. And those are from the days when he was tortured in prison when he was a student where he was electrocuted. So he says, uh, I mean, it will be too graphic to describe it. So he says that they would remove the nails of the, yeah, and they would put fire in a barrel. And once the barrel would be very hot, they would ask the people that they had in prison to hug that barrel just as a way of punishment so that they get burned. So they, they, were, they were electrocuted and really tough times. Very, very, sounds awful. Yeah, they, they they ran away to Pakistan and then, you know, they grew up. So my mom was 11, 12 years old when she ran away. My dad was in, also a teenager. And then they met in Pakistan. They fell in love and then they got married. Oh, so your mother ran away as well? I mean, her family. Her family ran away from Afghanistan. Yeah. And then once she settled in Pakistan, she met your father, who had also escaped to Pakistan from Afghanistan. And that's how they met. Yeah, there were millions. My parents were not the only one. So if you talk to any Afghan from that time, it's like every single Afghan's life is like, every single Afghan has so many stories to say of their experiences. It's like one can make a movie on every single Afghan's life of the experiences that they have gone through, of the traumatic, I, I should say tragic experiences that they have gone through. Now, when I think about the life that they had, your parents getting married and staying in Pakistan, how long were they there before they relocated? So my parents say that they would go on and off depending on the circumstances of the country because it was so unstable. So they were mainly located in Pakistan. 
but they would move back to Afghanistan. You know, that's when I was born, when they had temporarily moved to Afghanistan. So I was born there and then they came back. So I think I was around, I don't remember because I was too young. I was only five years old uh, when the Taliban came. So they, they, they moved back to Pakistan when the Taliban came. So they had temporarily relocated to Afghanistan. And when the Taliban and the instability was there, so they moved back to uh, Pakistan. So this was in the early 90s? Yeah. So the Taliban first time came into power in 1996. So that was their first reign. I mean, first time they ruled Afghanistan. That was, I think, September or September or October 1996. Uh, and it was a similar situation at the time, the situation that we are seeing today. At the time, there was, I mean, there was no social media, no internet. So, um, you know, the world wouldn't know as much what was happening behind the scenes in the country. So they, they then fled to Pakistan. And then we were settled there. We, we stayed there. My parents stayed there till 2002 where exactly where in Peshawar in Peshawar, in Peshawar. okay yeah yeah so I we were there and then in 2002 because the Taliban were no longer in power after the American um, invasion and you know the NATO troops came so my parents moved back to Afghanistan so they moved my mom my dad my siblings they moved back to Afghanistan but my elder sister and brother who, so I was at the time 11 or 12, maybe 12-ish, and my sister and brother who were like, my sister was a year older than me and my brother was two years older than me. So all of us early teens, in, in our early teens, we stayed with our, grand, with our grandmother and uncles in Peshawar. So my mom and dad moved because the country was, I mean, Taliban were no longer there. My dad was working. My dad was in the UN. Uh, he was working with UNDP and then with UNWFP. So he moved to Afghanistan. And was that decision, was that, was that an agreed decision that, okay, three children will stay with the grandparents, the rest will return? How did that decision come about? So what happened was my... If you're comfortable sharing it, no, no, I don't I, want I, to... I, I, No, no, of course. So we were already in a school in Pakistan. So what happened, I was, I think, in, in year... Four, I think I was. So my dad didn't want to leave me there because I was too young. I was only 12 years old. So my dad wanted my elder sister and brother to stay in Pakistan to pursue their education because my dad, he's very much into uh, his children being educated. He was always, even during Taliban time. So, you know, the reason he took us to Pakistan was for us to get education. So I actually had to cry and beg them to let me. And now reflecting back, I'm like, how could I have done that as a 12-year-old child? But it was just that passion of that I wanted to study. I didn't want to go to Afghanistan. Why? What did you associate with Afghanistan that was so different to Pakistan? During Taliban time, I had visited Afghanistan because my dad worked in the UN. So I had visited Afghanistan in Kabul. I, I had stayed there for three months because in Pakistan, in Peshawar, Summers were very hot, so we would go in summers to Kabul. Kabul weather was really good. Just to put in context, you're going back to Kabul as a child for up to three months. How old were you at the time? So I would have been maybe nine, ten years old. All right. And this is during the Taliban rule? During the Taliban period. What was that like? So the, the conditions were ironic. So what happened during Taliban time was 
there were atrocities of human rights violations, no doubt, especially of women. Like, you know, women were not allowed to educate, get education. There was no working rights. They would have to wear the burqa. Like, you know, though my mom never wore it because my dad was in the UN, so we are kind of protected. But all other women, they, they would wear it. And actually, what happened was one day my sister and I, we were playing outside our house, being nine, 10 years old. And in the street, suddenly there was a cry. And then when we saw there is a Talib who was, you know, whipping on the floor with the leash, you know, there's the long thing. Like a whip. Yeah, it's, I don't know, it's called a whip or... A truncheon or something, yeah, yeah, I think. Because there was a woman whose feet were a bit visible, her shalwar was a bit up, and one could see her, uh, you know, a bit of her ankles. And then we ran to our house. We both, my sister and I, we were quite scared. So we ran to the house. And also because we, we were there, like we had visited Kabul once or twice, there was no education for us. And my, my dad always used to give us, you know, as a child, he would say like, you know, when someone gets educated, they can do this, they can do that. So I always had that in my mind. When my dad said, you know, we are going to Kabul and I was like, I don't want to study diary because there was no English in Afghanistan. So I was like, I don't want to study in those schools. I want to study in Pakistan schools where I can learn English. And my mom and dad were really, really reluctant to allow me. And also because I'm one of, well, I'm, I'm one of their children that is very attached to them. Even till today, I talk four times with my mom a day, even though she lives three kilometers away from me. <laughs> so they were really reluctant. Just on that issue, you're saying in, in Afghanistan, the education, like the medium was, was Dari. Was it ever English? At the time, there wasn't. Before that, was it ever in English? Was it ever English as a medium of education before the Taliban or not? Was it always Pashto before that? I think it was all Pashto in Dari. English may have been just as a side language, as in to study as a language. As an optional one. Okay. Yeah. The medium was Pashto in Dari. Okay. So you convinced your parents that you were going to stay in Peshawar to do your schooling. At the ripe old age of 12 years old, you somehow managed to convince them to let you stay with your grandmother. Grandmother and my two uncles. At the time, I didn't know the effect of that decision. I was really happy that I will be staying there to study. But that decision costed me really heavily. For two years, as I said, I was very close to my mom. For two years, I would cry almost every day. And we would see my parents only three times per year. Once in Eid al-Fitr, um, once in Eid al-Adha, and once in our summer vacation. And then each time going to Kabul was, as I said, the roads would take 12, 13 hours. And there were a lot of insecurities on the way. Like there would be the fear of Taliban, even though the Taliban were not in the government, but there were the rural areas that were Taliban dominated. So we would be scared of, and then my dad started working in the government. So we would be hiding our identities. We would not tell anyone who our dad was because we would be fearing that, you know, they, they will kidnap us or they will assassinate us. And there were no toilets on the way for 12 hours. So we would be stopping the car behind the bushes and there would be the fear of mines being there. And then we would be planning for days in terms of which route to take so that no one knows that we are traveling. And all that being a 12-year-old child, and now that I am a mother, and I think about that, at the time, you know, I mean, I was traumatized, but now I'm kind of reliving those moments. 
And I'm like, why was there no help for me? There was no, no child psychologist. There was no one to talk to. I would be crying for hours, like, you know, for my parents. And then there would be no help. There would be nothing. And all I would think to myself would be, oh, this is temporary. It's okay. You know, I have this opportunity. I will study and, you know, I will have a bright future. And I, I would convince myself, like I would talk to myself and my sister and brother would talk to me. They were also young, but they were like a year and two years old. My sister was one year older. My sister was two years older than me and my brother was two years older than me. And it was really traumatic time. So for me, that even though we were initially settled in Peshawar, but my parents going to Afghanistan and then we starting as children, like, and we were refugees at the time, we were not recognized. We were neither proper Afghans, nor we were like an identity crisis. In limbo between the two countries. We couldn't identify ourselves as Afghan, neither could we identify ourselves as Pakistani. So it, it was it was a really tough situation. And I ended up being like that for five years. And then after, so I was uh, in 2008, my dad went to South Korea. So he got a job in South Korea. And that's when we moved to South Korea. And then from South Korea after, so he became a diplomat in South Korea from Afghan government. And then we all moved to South Korea. And then from South Korea, when his term finished, he went back to Afghanistan and then he was targeted. Someone tried to assassinate him. And that's when we came to Australia and my parents sought a political asylum. My dad sought political asylum. And then since then, we have been here. Wow. Can I ask about that, though, in, in terms of between your father going back and being targeted? Were you with him at the time or were you still in Korea? No, at the time when he was targeted in 2008, we were in Australia. So what happened oh. was we had come to visit my uncle. So we came to visit my uncle from Korea. And then it was summers. And then from there, we were going back to Afghanistan because, you know, my dad's term was finishing. And then when we were in Australia, my dad was targeted and my dad said, you guys don't come. I, 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 will, I, will, I can't provide security for you guys. The government is not providing security for me. And if you guys come, you, you, I mean, anything can happen to you guys. So then he also came to Australia and then he sought political asylum. Wow. So in spite of him working for the Afghan government, there was no safety for him. There was no safety. This is what actually what I, I have reached up to a point where I'm like, regardless of who is in power, whether Taliban is in power, whether there is, you know, the president that was or the previous president, there has never been peace. There is never peace. Whether you are in government, whether you are a normal person working, you can be targeted anytime. So when, when we were in Kabul during Karzai administration, my dad used to work for him. We couldn't roam around like a normal person. We had seven, eight bodyguards that they would roam around with us. We couldn't leave our house. We were imprisoned in our house because they would be saying, if you go, you know, someone can kill you, someone can hurt you, someone can kidnap you. So we wouldn't actually go for shopping. Our guard would go and bring things for us. Sometimes I'm like... We don't choose, we didn't choose to be born Afghan. We, we are born Afghans. And then just by the virtue of being born Afghan, we are exposed to so many difficult, I mean, difficult would be an underestimate to say 
through so many through so many challenges in life that we never want to go through that as a child or as a teenager you're an educated clear and educated individual and you've got family with clear experience and skin in the game when it comes to i guess the political landscape of Afghanistan what is it about the terrain of government in Afghanistan that after successive governments there's no stability what in your opinion do you think is the reason for there to be a consistent and stable and safe government ruling the country why can't they get there i think the reason is because afghanistan is a very culturally rich country there are a lot of ethnicities so there is the pashtuns there is the tajik there is the hazaras baloch like there are a number of ethnicities and each ethnic group has different values and different lifestyles and from my perspective how i see is there is no unity amongst the leaders so during the taliban period where i live i went to afghanistan as i said there were atrocities of human rights you know of women's rights but there was one thing they had law in order so we could walk on the streets no one could dare say a word to us we would go outside and we would leave our doors open no one could dare to come inside the house take a thing from the house at the same time we lived during the karzai administration there were still human rights atrocities even in karzai time but not the same rights that were during the taliban time so during the karzai period and even in the current government you know there was freedom so the freedom of education for women the freedom of however you want to dress up the freedom of you know speaking the journalists the social media the internet infrastructure all these things were there but at the same time there were also human rights abuses you know there was police brutality there was and there is targeted killing even during karzai and ghani period i mean administration there were targeted killings there is high rates of crime where if you walk on the last night i was uh, talking to a friend of mine and we were talking about the current situation so she tells me that in kabul i haven't been to kabul since 2008 so she tells me that she went only a few years ago and she could not take her iphone out and talk on the street with her iphone because someone would snatch it from her hand you know people can come into your house and rob you i'm just thinking about how so little of that particular experience in reality is ever conveyed in western media so i'm just thinking you know we, we are hearing today and you know in the last 48 hours extensive coverage of prospective life under the taliban what it's going to mean and what it could mean and what it could look like but very few are actually we're not actually hearing very much from afghans themselves especially in australia about what life how, how imperfect life was even with the previous regimes oh they were imperfect so if we were to um, portray that the previous two governments were perfect that would be unjust the highest level of corruption from the president up until you know a, a normal manager in a department how much would be a manager salary in a department or a director salary in a department maximum maximum it would be $50,000 per year and if you see the houses that they have built they are multimillion dollar houses my dad worked with the government in his entire life he has lived in a, in a rental house he could not afford to build his own house because he avoided to be corrupt 
So he was one of the top people in the government. He was a spokesman to the president. You know, he was director of media and communication of the presidential palace. In his entire life, he could afford to make one house. And even in that house, he has not lived because of the instability. But we see these other people who have 10, 10 houses. Where does the money come for that house? Yeah. So, I mean, there were imperfectionists. I mean, the same rights that were abused in the Taliban regime were not abused in, in the other two regimes, but there were abuses. I have reached up to a point where I'm not into who is at power. All I want is peace. All I want is instability. And peace and instability, I'm not like a, a, a political analyst, but from my experiences, I think peace and instability will be there when there is a united government. Taliban are not going to go anywhere. When they were away in these two regimes, all they did was create instability in Afghanistan by, you know, targeted killings or by bombarding, you know, rural areas or targeting the high profile people and all that. So I think probably it would be best. It may bring unity or peace if all these leaders or different sects combine together and form a united government where they take best of all government, where they take law and order, they're where they take allow the human rights, you know, to flourish. What do you say to the pronouncements made from the Taliban, you know, PR representative who has said that the, the proposed government for the Taliban will be inclusive? And it will include representatives from all the ethnic minorities to form a cohesive government. So that was one of the you know, pronouncements they made in the last week. What do you think of that? To be honest, it's very difficult to trust them. And that's why we are also concerned. And, you know, today I applied for two days leave from my work because of all the stress that I am going through, thinking the fear of uncertainty, the fear of What's going to happen next? The Taliban have such a bad history that it's very difficult to trust them. They may have changed, but we can't say for sure that they have actually changed. And they are trying their best to portray that. They are trying their best to, you know, to convince everyone that, you know, they have changed. Now, whether this is just a tactic to get international legitimacy or whether they have actually changed is for time to tell. Do you think they're convincing the Afghan people that they have reformed? The fact that the Taliban have a PR spokesperson, I was like, wow, that's a very, I mean, that seems to be a very progressive position and portfolio for you know, a regime that you know, we once considered completely not willing to participate in any kind of democratic process. But now they're talking about inclusive governments and bilateral relations with China an inclusive government of ethnic minorities, a public relations spokesperson. Do you believe in this new apparatus or do you think it's the stunt or do you think it's too early to tell? I think it's too early to tell. Given that we are all so stressed of what's happening, I think I'm just trying to be wishful that and trying to kind of think that it may be right. I mean, it, they may have changed. But it's just too early to say. It's, as I said, the atrocities of human rights that we experienced in their time, they say, you know, I think there is a saying which says, you know, past experiences can determine the future. I don't know, there was a saying that I came across the other day. My point is that their past experiences is not positive. So it's very difficult for people to trust them. 
I mean, over time, everyone changes. We as human beings, when we get educated, we change. Like the more we experience in life, the more we change. And these Taliban, they actually, most of them had the opportunity, like these new leaders, I think, most of them had the opportunities to study or to like, you know, acquire education. So they may have changed or I don't know, it may be just them trying to get international legitimacy. And then once they get the international legitimacy, then they can do whatever they want to do. And that's the fear that we are holding. We are like, what's going to happen next? Are we going towards another, is history repeating itself? Is there another civil war coming up? Is there another, you know, in two, three years time, is there another foreign involvement of foreign NATO or foreign troops going to be sent back to Afghanistan? What's going to happen? Like, that's the fear that I think is holding us all Afghans at this time, the fear of the unknown. Given what you know, compared to, say, the Amina back in 2007 when you were, when you were coming to Australia or 2000 2011 compared to what you knew then and you know, and if you compare that to what you understand now do you feel that those interventions were justified and that they made a significant improvement for the life of the Afghan people or oh, the presence of the international forces they did make improvements I think in the life of the the Afghans given that their presence in the country did also inject a lot into the economy of the countries. And that by itself gave a lot of opportunity for people to be employed and, you know, for the cash flow within the country. And that in return modified the lifestyles of people, given that they, they were facing poverty previously. And now the injection of money in the economy from the international forces it kind of elevated their standard of living. I guess, you know, when we look at the last 12 months, there's been some very troubling reports about the presence of Australian soldiers in Afghanistan, for example, and the war crimes that were committed. And I can't imagine what, for an Afghan in Australia, what they must be enduring when they have to read those reports and know, A, what their country was going through before. And then even with this so-called intervention there that is supposed to be assisting the country, and, and this happens. The international forces being in Afghanistan doesn't mean that they were the perfect international forces who didn't do anything wrong. When I was there in Karzai period, we did see international forces killing innocent civilians, and they would just stamp it as a casualty in an operation. Like collateral damage. Yes, the collateral damage. So yes, that has happened a lot. And that's not only with Australia. So those reports came from the Australian troops were not something that we thought Australia would have done, and they were horrible. But at the same time, there were other countries that have done worse. I mean, I don't have words to condemn what they have done. But at the same time, there were other countries that have done worse, that have committed worse war crimes in Afghanistan. You're watching these things unfold, and we hear items on the news about the, the insurgents and the Taliban returning and seizing and some of the images don't look like they were seizing. It looks like they just walked in. So they just walked in and just took over. How did this happen if prior to this in the last 30 years, there have been an armed incursion of foreign countries in there protecting the people? Suddenly they leave, the others walk in. It just seems surreal. Yeah, so the, the, I think the international troops started pulling over a few months ago when there were the peace negotiations. So what happened was, to my limited knowledge, is there was peace negotiation between the United States and the Taliban in Qatar. 
and that's where it was agreed that you know the international forces will withdraw from Afghanistan and i think the agreement was that the american forces will withdraw in april this year and that was as part of the the trump administration's strategy towards the elections i think and that didn't happen and now the deadline was i think end of this month or september and the agreement was that i think that the taliban would allow the withdrawal of you know the the taliban wouldn't harm the or interfere with the foreign forces but what happened was the afghan forces left in the middle they were suddenly left out they are still not properly trained enough to carry the fight themselves and from what i have been seeing in the news you know there were uh, some news that that was saying that these soldiers had command from the above not to fight the taliban and to just surrender so i don't know who those commands have come from so yes it all did happen so within a span of 5 to 6 days the taliban took over like you know the main cities and that was because the soldiers were commanded not to fight and also because um so what happened was uh, we hear that the soldiers had not been even properly fed and were not even paid their salaries so they thought it's not even worth losing their life as i mentioned earlier the level of corruption that happens in the country and then there are these allegations that the president ran away with hundreds of millions of dollars leaving behind everyone and then now the president appears and says he's going to come back for the country i mean when a ship sinks the captain is the last one that leaves the ship not the first one to run away from the country so that speaks for itself i think again and i think this level of interrogation about you know the process leading up to the taliban coming in that's something that we're not seeing much of a media lens on here it is almost like we're just looking at what happened later what happens after not the process because i think the process to how it got to this point is is quite important to understand then whether or not the media even has an agenda in telling a particular narrative of the story but above all that i think having this narrative informed by afghan voices and people like yourself who have lived experience of what it was like under whatever the regime was and whatever the presidency was to be able to say that you know there was there were injustices there were inconsistencies there was a power battle and a power struggle and there was corruption and yes that that continues to go on more optimistically what you see is some of the solutions i think that that's promising and i and i have to ask you um mina do you have family who are still in kabul at the moment and have you heard from them yes i have i have my grandmother the same grandmother with whom i lived for 5 years so my mom's mother i have my two uncles my mom's brother i have my dad's father another uncle and i have all all my like you know these close relatives cousins second cousins they're all there and actually last night i talked to one of my uncles who says that another uncle has gone to the airport with all his daughters waiting to be evacuated and the uncle with whom i talked he was angry at my other uncle and saying why he has gone to the airport because it's so unsafe to go and they don't have any visa they have nothing they have just gone to the airport just thinking somehow to enter into the plane and get evacuated is just devastating to know how desperate they are all to flee the country and when they share that desperation are they sharing that desperation 
based on a specific directive that they have heard or seen about the the Taliban government? No, it's just because of the fear of what will happen if they stay in the country. As I said, the, the image that Taliban have, it's very concerning. The name Talib, if you mention it in the country, people get scared of it because of their past history. So no one knows what's going to happen. People are scared that they will be here and then there will be the resistance group is forming. So when there is the resistance group, there may be a war. There may be, you know, instability again. So what's going to happen? We don't know. We don't know the next few months be whether the international forces will recognize the Taliban, the international countries. If they do, what happens? If they don't, what happens? So it's all uncertain. And that's why people are panicking and people are like, you know, fearful for their life. And what actually really hurts me is them calling me, thinking that I am a lawyer and I I know the answer to everything. And then they think that I know all the immigration process and then asking me, can I pass a word for them? Can I fill their form? Can I do this thing? Can I do that thing? And I'm like, yes, I am a lawyer, but I wish I could help you. I wish there was something in my hand I could do for you. And I think that feeling of being unable to help them in this time of need is what is actually really hurting me internally in terms of I don't know what to do for them. At most, I can fill forms for them because they don't know English. But what else is there that I can do for them? I can raise my voice for the government here to you know, increase the intake, but whether the government will do it or not, that's a different question. It's just so difficult to see all these people so desperate to get out of the country and being so helpless. Yeah, no, I, I can't even imagine. And like you said, your hands are tied in terms of how much you can do from this distance in under a different legal system as well. And the expectations of this government to do more at this point we know that the Prime Minister indicated he'll increase the intake of 3,000 or he'll allocate 3,000 of the proposed 12,000 to Afghan seeking asylum. But of course, he's, he, again, he was, that was conditional as well on the way in which they arrive as well. How do you feel the Afghan community here in Australia? It's impossible. I know you've just explained how diverse they are. There's so much variance even ethnically among the community. But generally speaking, do you feel they have a sense of optimism that this government might be supportive or that other Western nations might take them in or even places, countries like Turkey and Pakistan. I don't know how much the resources they have at the moment to do more, but do you sense there's an undercurrent of optimism that things might pan out for those who are escaped? Or do you feel that some actually feel, let's wait and see, maybe the Taliban aren't everything that this media is portraying them out to be. The media does get it wrong sometimes. Maybe they don't. What's, what's your reading of the people's reaction? I think majority of the people that I have been involved, we are all in a panic mode right now. And majority of the people that I have talked to, they are, they are not optimistic about the situation. They, they are not positive. They are not positive at all. And actually, they think it is just Taliban strategy to, you know, legitimization from the Western countries. And then after that, it will go back to the normal. Propaganda. Yeah, that's what most of the Afghans are thinking at this time, at least the people that I am in touch with. And that is what is concerning for us. And that's why we are quite fearful of what the future will be for us. And that's why we are trying our best to get 
as many people protection in foreign countries as we can. No, no, and inshallah, I wish you every success with the campaign. And I know you did put out, and we will share the link that you placed on. I think it was LinkedIn. Was it was it a change.org petition? Yeah, it is. It has it has attracted over hundred thousand signatures. What's the essence of that petition about? So that petition is about calling on the Australian government to give permanent residency or process application of those asylum seekers who are already in Australia on temporary visas and also the ones that are in detention. Many of whom have been designated refugees as well. Yeah, yeah. And also for calling on the Australian government to provide emergency protection for the Afghans that are at immediate risk in Kabul, in Afghanistan, not only in Kabul. And we are asking for the government to increase the intake to at least 20,000 people from Afghanistan, because 3,000 people realistically is not many people. There are millions of people that have been displaced, as we can see in the pictures and, you know, the videos coming out of the airport. I think there are images that are going to stay in our mind for for some time to come. This violence doesn't see any minority or majority group. Like our families are from the majority groups, like, you know, the major ethnicities. And yet still we have endured the sufferings and the pains that the war doesn't see any any ethnicity. Anyone that comes on its way is impacted by it, regardless of what language we speak, regardless of which ethnicity we belong to, it does impact anyone that comes on its way. So it doesn't discriminate, it, it affects everybody. No, it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't yeah. discriminate. I mean, I thank you so much for sharing your insights. I think it's it's a privilege to be able to hear them. And it's I think it's so important that when we discuss this issue, that it is led by people who have a vested interest in the outcome of this issue rather than just have pundits continue to analyze and make, you know, assumptions and projections based on their their reading of it. I think yours is essential. And I, I really value that you could do this for us. Look, I typically ask my guests when I close my program to close with a phrase or a few lines, if you like, of maybe a wish or a salutation or even a, a dua or a prayer, in this case, in language to your people. Because I really want to celebrate, again, the diversity of the amazing people that I get the privilege of speaking with, like yourself. And for me, if you are able to say anything, whether it's special or diary or whichever language that you prefer, if you would like, I'm assuming you do speak it, especially to your mother. So if you wanted to just say a few words and anything that you wanted to say, in the, I guess in the spirit of your what you're feeling now, what your hopes are, and then also let us know what it is in English after you have said it. Okay. I think I'll say it in English first, then in diary. Okay. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. My wish and prayer is to have peace. I'm not into who is at power, whether it's Taliban, whether it's Ghani, whether it's Karzai whoever it is, I just want peace. I don't want my people to be dropping out of the planes. I don't want them to be desperate to hang their child to the soldiers in the airport for their protection. All I pray from God and all I wish is just to have peace for my people. Because right now, only God knows what we are going through. I just don't know how to explain it. And I just wish for peace. And now I will say it in Dari. Yeah. And I don't know, yeah, I'm just getting emotional, but I will say it in diary that, Ya Allah, Barama, 
أعمل بتي برما أمنيات بتي ما إذا نمي خان ما إذا ما دفكر هذه نيسم كي رئيس جمهورس طالباس كارزاس غنيس كياس برما برما أمن بتي برما بيس بتي برما صلها بتي كمردم ما دجا زاجر نبينا مردم ما دجا دار بدار نشا تبا برباد شد إيه أفغانا يا خدا يا خدت رحم كسرشان Thank you so much, Amina. It was so generous of you to give of your time. I know you're an incredibly busy community lawyer and to drag you away from your work and your and your clients and to share with us, this is an enormous privilege. You know, inshallah, I hope it's going to benefit so many of our listeners, but we all pray for the peaceful outcome that you also yearn for. And we hope that our governments, not just this government, but governments with the capacity to do more, do do more. And most importantly, that peace prevails in your home country. Thanks. Let's just hope for peace. You can search for more Strengths Untold via Spotify, Apple, Google Music, iHeartRadio, Pocket Cast, SoundCloud, and almost all the podcast apps that are out there. Please subscribe, review, rate, and tell your friends about Hmm Podcasts. Every share makes a huge difference to us all. If you have any stories that you'd like to email us or contacts that you think would be useful for us to pursue for conversation in this format, please email me at thesneem.chopra at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Strengths Untold. Bye for now. You never know, you never know, you never know what is coming tomorrow.